Good evening, this is Tyler. Welcome to the lecture for Chapter 13, I believe, of Economics 1500, concerning money. Let me kind of give you the big picture of where we're headed, and then we'll get into the details of money. Our ultimate goal, really, is to understand how money affects economic variables like unemployment, employment, output, income. Uh, in other words, how money affects the business cycle. Money is an important uh, piece of the puzzle in trying to understand economic policy. We want to understand how money can uh, be used by the Federal Reserve to influence output employment and uh, try to smooth out the business cycle. Uh, to do so, we first have to understand what money is. That's so much of what Chapter 13 is about. Then we need to understand a little bit about the banking system. Again, that's a little bit of that is included in Chapter 13. And then we need to understand uh, uh, later, this will come in later chapters, how the Federal Reserve, with the aid of the banking system, can manipulate the money supply and thereby affect uh, output and employment. At that point, we'll connect what goes on with the money supply to our aggregate supply, aggregate demand model to understand what we call monetary policy. Remember, we have two types of macroeconomic policy that can be used to affect the economy. One is fiscal policy. We're done with that, for the most part. That's the federal government using its powers of spending and taxation to influence our spending, and thereby affect the economy. Now we're going to start into monetary policy, how the Federal Reserve manipulates the money supply and causes changes in interest rates and how that affects our economy. But we have to move a piece at a time. First money, then the banking system, and then we'll connect that with the Federal Reserve and our aggregate supply, aggregate demand model. But you may uh, you may have heard that, in fact, I think I used this as our discussion question, didn't I? By the way, I think, well, this may not apply for all semesters. Uh, I'll use this lecture for more than one semester, and the discussion questions will change. But anyway, as I'm preparing this lecture, the new Federal Reserve Chairman is Ben Bernack. Uh, to replace Alan Greenspan. You're, I'm sure all have heard of Alan Greenspan. And I have recently posted a an article from the Wall Street Journal on the web page uh, of this course, so you can read a little bit about Ben Bernack, the new chairman of the Federal Reserve. Well, money. While I'm doing this, you may want to call up your slides for Chapter 13. Early on, I don't know, Early early societies, very early on, decided that money is a very nice and convenient thing to invent, and so they invented it. Without money, we have to engage in barter. We're going to individuals will specialize and want to trade based on rational self-interest. Uh, without money, if they're going to specialize and then trade, you have to barter. So if you're specializing in growing pumpkins and you want fish, you have to go out with your pumpkins and travel the countryside in the dark forests of Europe trying to find somebody who has excess fish but wants pumpkins. Well, you may be killed in the process or you may wear yourself out carrying your pumpkins around trying to find somebody with, that wants pumpkins and has fish. This double coincidence of wants makes barter very inefficient. So some societies early on decided we need to define some intermediary good or some medium of exchange which we can all sell in terms of and buy, use to buy. So the person with pumpkins can sell for the medium, use the medium, then at the market buy fish. 
And so markets will also appear, uh, centralized markets, and trading posts will appear with the advent of money. So money will facilitate, money primarily facilitates trade. Now if you have your slides, uh, go to slide slide four, specifically, well, slide three, but money's, money's an asset, something of value, something of worth, like a car. But money, by definition, is the most liquid asset. By definition, money can be used to purchase things. You can walk into Albertsons with money and make a purchase. You cannot walk into Albertsons with your car and make a purchase. So money, by definition, is the most liquid of assets, and we rate other assets in terms of liquidity by comparing them to money, how quickly they can be used in exchange for goods and services. More specifically, money serves four functions. It serves as primarily, and this is the, the principal function of money, and what defines money is it is a medium of exchange. So societies have used different things. In World War II prisoner camps, they used cigarettes as the medium of exchange. Didn't smoke the cigarettes, they were too valuable, they were used as money. Uh, you know, other societies viewed precious metals or anything that's storable, uh, which will it can be used as money. Uh, as soon as you start using whatever asset you choose as the money uh, medium, it will also serve as the unit of account. In other words, prices will be quoted in terms of money. So if you're using cigarettes, you can quote prices in terms of packs or numbers of cigarettes in the prisoner of war camps. Well, because money has value, you can also accumulate wealth in terms of it. You can store it. You can save in terms of money. So if you're a prisoner of war in World War II German prison camp, you can accumulate wealth in terms of storing cigarettes under your bed and hope they don't get stolen. Uh, and also, you can use money as a standard of deferred payment. In other words, you can, you can uh, promise to pay in terms of so many dollars or so much of the money supply at a later point. And uh, these other slides just give you a little more uh, uh, information on these mediums of exchange. Which I've already given. Let's skip ahead to slide 10. Moving right along. What serves as money in the United States? Well, you can walk and think, what do you walk into Albertsons and buy something with? You can walk in there and buy it with currency. That is bills and coins. You can also go to Albertsons and write a check. I think, probably. In other words, you can use a deposit, a checking deposit, or some kind of deposit on which you can write a check is money. It's an asset. It's a value. If you was to make a list of your assets, you would include in there what the amount you have in your checkable deposits or your checking accounts. Uh, you wouldn't. You, how about a credit card? So a lot of people think, well, credit card's money. No, a credit card is just a, a convenient way of accessing debt. But if you were to make, again, a listing of your assets, you would include cash or currency. You would include the amount you have in your checking account. But you wouldn't count up and somehow value the credit cards in your wallet. Credit cards are not assets. They're just a way of accumulating debt. At some point, you're going to have to write a check pay off the credit card company. So currency deposits. Uh, and going to slide 11, we also include traveler's checks. So we have something we call the M1 money supply. At some point in time in our economy, there's a certain amount of currency. There's a certain value, certain number and value of traveler's checks, probably, probably fairly insignificant, unimportant. 
I don't know about you, but I don't have any traveler's checks on me at this point in time. I take a drink. It's been a long day. I'm, I'm, I'm on the I'm on the drinking. I'll let you decide what I'm drinking. But and then there are also demand deposits and other checkable deposits. Demand deposits are the standard sort of checking account that don't pay interest. But there are other other checkable deposits. There's a host of them now that banks cater uh, tailor for individual business needs that are uh, interest-bearing checking accounts. If you add those all up, we have the M1 money supply. There's a certain amount of money. Money is a stock concept. At one at a point in time, there's a certain amount of money because it's, it's an asset. An asset is a stock concept. In the United States today, there's a certain amount of money. Tomorrow it may be different. Five years from now it may be different. And I'm telling you the money supply, as so defined, can change. And we'll see later how the Federal Reserve, in conjunction with the banking system, can change it. And that may or may affect uh, other economic variables. Uh, well, you see there in slide 12 a, a, geo, a picture of what goes into the M1 money supply. And you see that deposits and other checkable deposits make up most of it. Uh, well, currency is significant as well. There's also a concept of the... Well, hold it before we go there. Slide 13 makes a distinction between fiduciary money and commodity money. Early societies used something of inherent value as their money supply. If we're using gold as the money supply, gold has value of in and of itself. You can use it as jewelry or making, uh, uh, I don't know, mostly as jewelry, I suppose, but I'm, I think gold is used in other manufacturing processes. Or if wheat, some societies use grain. If you use wheat as a money supply, you can also eat the wheat. Uh, of course, we mentioned in the World War II prisoner of war camps, we had cigarettes. Uh, they have some alternative use. Uh, money that has an alternative use has inherent value. Or money that is backed by gold or silver, backed by something of inherent value, is called commodity money. Now, we use demand deposits. Now, you can't eat those, can't smoke them, can't wear them. Commodity, demand deposits. Is that commodity money? Is it backed by gold, silver? No. How about currency? Even our currency, you can't eat that, smoke it, wear it. It doesn't make particularly nice jewelry. Uh, and it's not backed by gold. All it's backed by is the fact that we uh, all take it. I can walk down to uh, McDonald's and use a, a dollar on... Big Mac Monday to buy Big Mac. I give them a little cheap piece of paper with some green ink on it, and they give me uh, 700 calories, enough calories to sustain life for a small uh, village for a week. And I give them a silly little piece of dollar that they can't eat. I can eat. That hamburger has a lot of good stuff in it. Has a cow gave its all for that hamburger. We have some wheat and bread and lettuce and pickles all this good stuff, and I give McDonald's a cheap little piece of paper. Or maybe I give them 100 pennies on Big Mac Monday. Well, they'll take that dollar because they can turn around and pass it off to somebody else. Our money is backed by what I'll call the damn fool principle. We're all damn fools, in a sense. Not really, we're just a nice, clever term. We take the money because we know somebody else will take it. As long as we all trust each other and continue to accept money, currency, in this context, it has value. That's about it, though. It's not backed by gold or anything else like some people think. Well, 
skipping to uh, slide 19, we want to look a little bit about, there's a little bit of discussion about global money. We're going to we're going to skip through that, and I'll let you I'll let you read through that and send me your questions if you have any. Because uh, what we want to get to is the money creation example. But to understand that, we first have to understand a little bit about banks. Banks are financial intermediaries. Think of what a bank does. Pretty simple business, really. A bank opens its. Say we all go out and we form a bank. We rent a building, hire an employee to be our banker. We put up a sign accepting deposits. So savers come in and give us their deposits in our little bank. We'll call it the Bank of Online Economics 1500. Now we'll call it Online OE uh, Online Economics 1500. OE 1500. Ah, that's an awkward name. Let's call it OE Bank. Online Economics Bank. OE Bank. Open for business. We accept deposits from depositors, i.e. savers. And we take their funds and we lend them out. We take somebody's money, take other people's money, and lend it out. We borrow from some and lend to others. We, we're an intermediary, connecting savers, our depositors, to our borrowers, the lenders. And a number of institutions serve as financial intermediaries, as noted in slide 20. For our purposes, all these dis we really don't distinguish between, distinguish between commercial banks and savings and loans and money market mutual funds, etc. It's just worthwhile for you to see that. Uh, and there's a little more about the, the banks in general. In order to lend confidence to the banking system, as noted in slide 23, uh, and the banking system, by the way, is a very important part of our, our economy. It can create some havoc if things go wrong, as they did in the Great Depression or even in the 1980s with the savings and loan debacle when we had banking problems. Banks, when the banking system works smoothly, that's good for economic activity and economic efficiency. When the banking system doesn't work smoothly and there are booms and busts and bank failures, that can spill over into uh, real economic activity like causing people to lose their jobs and output to fall. We want a smoothly functioning banking system. And there's, there are some interesting characteristics of banking system which, which justify the government to get involved in regulating the banking system. And one of the functions of government is to insure deposits. That provides you and I as depositors some confidence so we'll put our money in banks. You know, I, 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 bank, I bank at a couple different banks and I don't know a lot about either bank really. I haven't looked at their balance sheet. I bank one at Zions Bank. I don't know much about Zions Bank. And I bank at another small local bank up in southeast Idaho where I live. Uh, I don't know a little a lot about the balance sheet of that bank. I don't know if I don't know too much. I don't I don't investigate the financial credibility or uh, solvency of a bank when I put a deposit in it because in the back of my mind I know that if that bank goes under I'm going to get my money back anyway through the federal deposit insurance, which was created as a way, a means of providing confidence in the banking system. It insures deposits. Well, and if the government's going to insure, de insure deposits, if they're going to be on the line when banks go bad, they're also going to regulate banks to make sure they don't go bad. They're going to tell banks what a bank may or may not do with its deposits. It's going to insure those deposits. The federal government does not want banks just to go out and 
gamble depositors money away. They need to make safe investments and, and meet certain criteria when they lend money out. Uh, but that's the business of banking. Furthermore, we we have what is called, uh, and this is important, and we're going to, again, we're moving right along here to slide 28. We have what is called a fractional reserve banking system. Again, I need to, need to take a drink. Now, in a fractional reserve banking system, a bank will not lend out all of its deposits. Look at the slide 28. Think back to the OE bank you and I create. We all get together, form a bank, open our doors, accept deposits. Say $1,000 comes in. Uh, well, we're not gonna we're gonna put we're not gonna lend all of that out. If we lend all thousand dollars out, and that's the only deposit we have, then say that depositor is an honorary feller that comes in the next day and wants his money back. Well, we have a problem, don't we? We tell him, well, we don't have your thousand dollars. Or say our depositor, we'll just call him Jake. Jake writes a check on that deposit, ordering us to pay somebody else his deposit. If we don't have his deposit, we're in we're in tough shape again. Well, in order to prevent this problem, first we want to have lots of depositors, and then we'll only lend out a certain, we'll only lend out a fraction of our deposits. Say we keep 20% of everybody's deposits, then we have some safety because unless everybody shows up on a given day, if everybody shows up, we we'll still have a problem if they want to come and withdraw their deposits. We'll only have 20% of the deposits in the bank, but on any given day, if we have lots of depositors. Chances are not all of them are going to come in and want their money. It's a very small fraction, so we'll come in, so our bank will be will be liquid and solvent and be able to meet depositors' demands. And the Federal Reserve uh, and other entities will set the fractional reserve, or excuse me, the percentage of deposits that must be held in reserve. And by reserve, we mean it must be these this money, these funds must be held as cash in the vault. Or, as we'll see later, we just will introduce it now. Or banks can hold reserves in a in an account at a Federal Reserve Bank, and that's what's going to connect the Federal Reserve system with banks. Banks can deposit funds called reserves into a Federal Reserve Bank, and there there uh, for example is a branch of the Federal Reserve Bank of San Francisco in Salt Lake City. So if Zions gets a deposit, and they can put hold some of that deposit in cash, but they could also deposit that those funds in the uh, Federal Reserve Bank branch in Salt Lake, and that's what banks do. They don't want to hold a lot of their reserves in cash in the vault. Banks tend to get robbed. Or, but, but the important point is neither type of reserve yields interest. Uh, well, based on a fractional reserve banking system, I'm going to give you the conclusion, and then we're going to. We're going to uh, see how this works by looking at some slides. And also, I think you're going to need your book. The slides aren't sufficient. If you haven't, don't have your book, pause this recording while you go get your book. But let's uh, let me first just give you the conclusion. I'm just going to state it. You can remember it, and then you'll hopefully we'll be able to understand why this is the case. But here is the, an important conclusion. Banks. By lending out excess reserves, create money. Let me say that again. Banks, 
by lending out excess reserves create money? Well, first we need to understand what we mean by excess reserves. Excuse me. Then we can uh, then we just we can just see how that lending out of excess reserves creates money. Well, first remember before we get to excess reserves, remember a bank only has to hold a certain percent of its deposits as reserves, based on the based on the regulation, the required reserve ratio. Let's say the required reserve ratio is 10%. I don't know if there's a slide that goes with this or not. I think there is slide 29. Uh, the reserve ratio is the fraction of a bank's total deposits that are held in reserves. The required reserve is the ratio of reserves to deposits that banks are required to hold. Required reserves are those reserves which must be kept on hand or deposit with the Federal Reserve. So I said. Excess reserves are the cash reserves beyond those required. So in other words, let's say the reserve requirement is 10, the required reserve ratio is 10%. $1,000 comes into our bank. And let's say initially we have no excess reserves. A $1,000 deposit comes into our OE bank. The reserve ratio is 10%. Let's say, however, out of that deposit, we keep $500 in reserve and loan out 500 you tell me, what are our excess reserves? We had no excess reserves to begin with. $1,000 comes in. We lend out 500 and the reserve ratio, required reserve ratio is 10%. I'll give you 10 seconds. 1,001, 1,002, 1,003, 1,004, 1,005, 1,006, 1,007, only $100. If we held back 500 and only lent out 500, we have $400 in excess reserves. Now I'm here to tell you again, if banks hold excess reserves, excuse me, when banks lend out excess reserves, that creates money. Not in the sense of printing it, but remember, much of our money supply is demand deposits. They can expand the sum of the uh, quantity of demand deposits by lending out excess reserves. <coughs> Our final point is we need to see how that works. Go to uh, go to your book. Unfortunately, this there's they didn't put these slides uh, didn't put uh, make slides of these figures. But if you go to uh, page three seventeen, let's look at figures four, five, and six together. So you have to, we have to look at a bank balance sheet. Hopefully you've probably read this once anyway, so you can kind of follow along. On the top of page 317, we have a bank balance sheet. And we have had $1,000 come in in deposits. And we'll assume these are checkable deposits. The reserve requirement is 10%. So the bank has cash on hand of 100000 and it's lent the other 900000 out. Now, from the bank's perspective, the deposit represents a liability. That's Those are funds the bank owes to some depositor. Now, in the bank, the $100,000 in its vault is an asset, and the loans represent assets. So we have the, we've broken this down to liabilities and assets, and our balance sheet balances. $1,000 million, it's a million dollars, what did I say? Did I say $100,000? A million dollars comes in. We hold 10% reserve as we have to. We initially have no excess reserves, and we've lent out the rest. Now, let's say that uh, going to the next page, we're assuming that for some, from somewhere comes a $100,000 deposit. Well, hold it. Let's go back. Let's assume that uh, in this society, nobody has any cash. 
Now, people, members of society will own deposits in this bank. Okay? So initially, the M1 money supply is a million dollars. Now you're asking me, what? I'm telling you, this is the only, let's start with this is the only bank. And this is the only bank in this society made up of us, uh, well, made up of somebody. And we all have deposits in this, checking accounts in this bank. Nobody has any cash. So the M1 money supply has to be a million. M1 is composed of cash held by the public. Now, there may be cash in this bank, but that's not part of the M1 money supply. It's an important point. The M1 money supply includes just uh, currency held by the public, checkable deposits, and checkable deposits, and other demand deposits, and traveler's checks. I'm assuming we have no cash. There's no traveler's checks. All we have are deposits, and in the only bank we have, there are a million dollars of deposits, so the M1 money supply equals a million. Now let's say, go to figure 5 on page 318, that there's some, from some source, maybe it falls, a $100,000 falls from heaven. And Jim happens to be standing there where it falls into the earth. He picks it up, and he takes it and puts it in the bank. Well, right now, we know that the money supply, as soon as, as soon as that, that $100,000 falls from the sky, and Jim picks it up, we know right now the money supply is 1,100,000. Because we still have a, th a million dollars in checking and deposits, and Jim has 100,000 in cash. Now, when Jim takes $100,000 and puts it in the bank, that in and of itself doesn't change the money supply. The money supply is going to be still 1.1 million. It's just all represented by demand deposits now because Jim no longer has the cash. So now the money supply is 1,100,000. It started a million dollars. $100,000 fell from heaven, so now it's 1,100,000. But notice, stare at figure 5 very closely. Notice. This whole 100000 went into the bank. What's First National Bank now have it that it didn't before? Now again, I'll stop for 10 seconds while you figure out, hmm, what has this $100,000 deposit created for First National Bank? 100, Well, its its cash in the vault went up to 200000 Loans haven't changed. Our balance sheet still balances. But remember, required reserves are 10% of 1.1 million or 110,000. There's 200,000 in reserve, only 110,000 needs to be there. This, bank's in a, this bank has excess reserves. Now remember what I told you. Banks create money when they lend out excess reserves. Let's see what happens. Let's say that Billy, let's say that, no, let's say that, uh, let's say that Maureen, Maureen walks into First National Bank and gets a loan. And uh, let's say she takes it in cash. It's a little different how this example works, but it's the same thing. Let's say that Maureen takes her loan in cash. She walks out of the bank with $90,000 in cash. The bank gives her the excess reserves ahead of 90000 What's the M1 money supply? There's still deposits of 1.1 million, but what, what does Maureen have? 
$90,000 in cash. The M1 money supply is now $1,190,000. Hmm. The banking system created $90,000. $100,000 fell from heaven. The money supply so far has went up by $190,000, but $100,000 fell from heaven. The other $90,000 is created by the banking system by lending out excess reserves. But the ball game's not over. Because now Maureen will buy something or put it back in another bank. In this example, it ends up in a second national bank, which creates additional excess reserves, which that which second national bank can lend out. And every time a bank lends out excess reserves, that will create money. And the process continues. It's, this process is summarized in slide 31 or in figure, excuse me, on table 2. Same thing, figure, uh, excuse me. Table 2 on page 319, which is the same thing as slide 31. We see that in the first round, look, $100,000 deposit creates 90000 of excess reserves, which also becomes the new loan, the new amount of, which is the new amount of money created. That will be deposited and create, create $81,000 of excess reserves, which will hence create $81,000 of new money keeps going around and around and around, but each time see it gets smaller, so it's an infinite process, but mathematically we can figure out that the banking system will be able to create $900,000 of new money based on 90, initial excess reserves of 90000 There's a formula which summarizes how much money can be created based on new uh, some initial excess reserves. If you go to page 320 at the top, it gives you, gives you that. If you take the deposit expansion multiplier, which is defined earlier and is also defined on slide 30, the deposit expansion multiplier by definition is 1 over the reserve ratio. In our example, it's 1 over 0.1 or 10. You take that deposit expansion multiplier and you multiply it by excess reserves, which in our case initially were 90,000. That'll tell you that deposits can expand by 900,000, which is exactly what we see on slide 31. New money created would be 900,000, the sum of that last column. Well, you'll probably have to work through that example. That's kind of a tricky thing, but one, it's, it's not too difficult. It's worth knowing. Not many people understand how money's created. And once we understand this, it's, the rest of the story concerning monetary policy is not too difficult. Because what we're going to find out in the next chapter is instead of... We want to just ask the question, and you can probably guess the answer. Where will the initial excess reserves come from with which the banking system can then create money? The answer is the Federal Reserve. See, the Federal Reserve, by manipulating reserves in the banking system, can create or destroy money. That's what makes Alan Greenspan so powerful. And now Mr. Bernanke, E. And then we'll see that by changing reserves and changing the money supply, the Federal Reserve can manipulate interest rates. And if interest rates change, that can affect things like consumption, investment, exchange rate, net exports, and others. So Alan Greenspan and the Federal Reserve have, have a lot of power. But that's enough for now. Uh, nice little chapter, nice little, nice little uh, little bit of information. There's some of it I skipped over. 
concerning global money and some of that but and that's all good and dandy you need to read that but it's not uh, we don't we'll need that information to answer questions on chapter 13 but we won't really need that information uh, later when we under, want to understand monetary policy but anyway nice little nice little chapter good luck and I will uh, I'll be with you a little later